Um, Why don't they invite our children to Children's Church? If you want to meet your uh, teacher in the back there, they'll, uh, they'll lead you to your classroom. And while they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, it's new every morning. You, uh, you show your love and your care for your people, and we're grateful. And so, Lord, we ask that you would now be with us as we open your word, as we study. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to hear and understand, to grasp what it is that you have for us this morning. And uh, we trust that you will speak, that your word will have its way with us. And uh, would you accomplish many wonderful things. And Father, I want to pray also for uh, Revive AV uh, this morning as they're gathered to worship. Would you do that same work in them? I pray that you would spark renewal and revival in their hearts and minds through the preaching and the teaching of your word. And so now uh, lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I had Chris read a restricted or reduced part of um, chapter 7. We're going to do, the sermon will cover 1 through 53. Um, I just didn't think we needed to sit and, and read 53 verses. That would take a while. Um, so we're going to do it. Uh, I just had Chris read that one part because that really kind of, I think, comes to the heart of the, the matter. Um, and then it sums it up when he kind of applies the sermon to the people in front of him. Uh, so we'll, we'll do the whole chapter. But uh, before we start, um, I, I want to say that this is one of those areas where uh, people can question the Bible and say, see, it's full of contradictions. Um, it's just not, not a trustworthy document. And uh, so what I'd like to do real quick before we dive into the text is, is touch on the matter of biblical inerrancy. What do we mean by that? So here's the problem. Is, is Stephen stands up and he talks. What he tells them is this uh, slimmed down version of Israel's history aiming at a specific point. And some of the things that he says don't agree with other texts in the Bible. And so that kind of raises a question. For example, um, at the beginning, he starts talking about Father Abraham. And in verse 3, he says, um, And God said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and into the land that I will show you. God did say that. But what Stephen says is, he said it to him in Mesopotamia. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he went to the uh, land of, lived in Haran. Um, that's what Stephen says. What Genesis 11 says is, Terah, his father, let him out to uh, go to the Canaan, but they stopped in Haran and stayed there. And then in Haran, God appeared to him and said, now go into the promised land. So Stephen says that, he received that message in Mesopotamia, and uh, Moses in Genesis said he received that message in, in Haran. So there's a, a, a conflict. Um, another one is it says that Joseph sent and summoned all his uh, father and his kindred. Uh, so he's talking about uh, when Joseph, and we just preached Joseph not that long ago, says that he summoned his father and his kindred, and uh, what Stephen says is it was 75 persons in all. Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 1, where it recounts that story, it says it's 70 people. And then if you go back to uh, Genesis um, 46, 26, it says there were 66. So it's, Genesis says 66. When we get to Exodus, it says 70, but it says because Joseph was already in the land. So the 66 plus Joseph, his wife, and his two boys, 70. That seems to contradict what Stephen said, which is 75. Um, Another one is when Moses rises up and, and um, he decides to go and check on his brothers. He wants to go out and see his people. Uh, it says that he came across two men who were quarreling. And what Stephen says is he reconciled them saying, 
Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? So what Stephen says is Moses addressed both of them. What it says in Exodus 2.13 is Moses corrected the man who was in the wrong and said, why do you strike your companion? So Stephen says he addressed two people. Exodus said he addressed one. And then finally, the, 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 what I consider the biggest one of them is when, um, when Stephen is summarizing or telling the story of the burning bush. He, he tells the story about Moses going up on the mountain, seeing a burning bush, and here's what he says. He said, the voice of the Lord came to Moses and said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So he announces who he is. Number two, Moses trembled and did not dare, dare to look. So he says who he is, Moses trembled, and then he says, God tells him, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. So that's how Stephen says it, is he announces who he is, Moses trembles, he tells him to take off his sandals. Well, what Exodus 3 says is, God said to him, do not come near, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. Second, he announces who he is, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then third, Moses hid his face. So which order did it happen in? Stephen puts it in a different order than Exodus does. And so um, there are these differences. And so some people look at that and they question the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Um, your Bible is inconsistent. These, these little details don't line up. So what I'd like to do real quick is just address what do we mean by biblical inerrancy and then offer some resolutions for this apparent conflict. And then we'll take a look at the whole text. So what we mean, the evangelical doctrine of biblical inerrancy is that God inspired exactly every word that was written down by the authors in their original manuscripts. So when the document was originally written, it was written exactly as God intended it. And the doctrine of inspiration means that God didn't overrule these people. He didn't shut them down. He didn't hand them golden plates and say, this is what I want written. He wrote in and through their personality, through their experience, through their viewpoint. And so he used human authors to accomplish exactly what he wanted. And we, what we believe in is we believe in what's called the plenary verbal inspiration. How's that for your $8 college-educated words? Plenary is just a really fancy way of saying full. It means all of it. So we mean the plenary inspiration is the whole Bible is inspired. The plenary verbal inspiration, the verbal part doesn't mean it's just the verbs that are inspired. It means every actual word that was written down was exactly as God intended of it. And inspiration means it comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carried these people along as, as they went. So that's what we mean by the verbal uh, inspiration of the scriptures. And what we mean by inerrancy is that since God wrote it this way, it's inerrant. There are no mistakes in it. There are no wrong things in the Bible. It is exactly as God said it. Why do we say that? Because God's not the God of confusion. He doesn't lie. He doesn't make mistakes. And so if these are the words that he wanted written down, then they are the true and accurate words because they're God's expression. So that's what we mean by inerrancy. So a couple more technical terms. There's a term called infallibility, and there's a term called inerrancy. Infallibility means incapable unable to make a mistake. And infallibility belongs only to God. Only God is the one who can never make a mistake. It is beyond his nature to make a mistake, to lie, something like that. So that's who God is. Inerrancy means I speak without an error. I haven't made a mistake. Humans can speak inerrantly. We can say things that are actually true. For example, if I ask you, how are you feeling today? 
You can, without error, explain to me how you feel at that moment. You, you can do that because you know how you feel. But if I ask you how much money is in your bank account, you may say the wrong number because you go, well, last time I looked, which was you know Thursday, it was about 250 bucks. Well, that's wrong because a check cleared and now it's only 93. So you could speak inerrantly without mistake or you could speak errantly, you could make a mistake. So you get the difference between the two. God cannot err. He cannot make a mistake. Human beings can or cannot. They can do both. So when we look at the scriptures and we say, God wrote the scriptures through humans, what we have to arrive at here is God can never err, but humans can. So when he used human beings to write the Bible, his inerrancy met up with human infallibility and produced exactly what he wanted. Humans made mistakes in other places, but God so supervised the scripture that he couldn't, there couldn't be a mistake in it. Does that make sense? This is, this is a, the evangelical view of the scriptures. It, this is what we mean by inspiration. This is what we mean by inerrancy. So let's go back to Stephen's quote-unquote mistakes, the things that he said differently. Um, how do we reconcile those? Well, there's, there's a couple of different options on, on how you could reconcile them. One is to say, well, it's an apparent mistake. It's apparently different between the two, but there's ways to, to bring them together. For example, um, God may have said to Abraham, while he was still in Haran, he may have told him, go to your land. And so Stephen somehow knows that, and so he, that's what he said. But Moses, when he wrote it down, he's bringing the emphasis in a different place. And so he's saying, while he was in Haran, he told him to go. There's nothing to say that those two can't be fitted together some way. The issue of how many people went into the promised land? Was it 70 or 75? Well, it could be that Moses is writing as a Hebrew and he's rounding down. And Stephen is writing as a Greek-speaking Jew and he's rounding up. It could be 74 people or 73 people went. Does it matter? Not really. But if we're talking about inerrancy, verbal inspiration right down to the words, then it does matter. The other way that this is resolved is Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew. His Bible almost assuredly was what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And in that Greek translation, it had additional books that we don't have in our Bible. They weren't written in Hebrew. They were written in Greek. And it's got some differences. And guess what one of the differences is? In Exodus 1, where it says how many people came out, the Septuagint said 75. So that's, there's not really a, a difficulty here. Stephen is quoting the Bible that he was using. Um, and then the last one is the one I really am not quite Oh, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the Moses stopping the fight. Both of those statements could be true. Moses, when he came upon two men fighting, he could have rebuked them both and said, Stop! And then once he found out what was going on, then he would turn to the man who was in the wrong and say, why are you doing this? So both of those cases could have happened. They're, they're not irreconcilable. The one I have the hardest time with is the last one, the order of things that happened at the burning bush. Um, I can't reconcile it. Does that mean it's unreconcilable? <laughs> no. Well, are humans infallible? No, we're capable of error. So I might just not be able to understand it. So that's one view is these, these differences are reconcilable. We can bring them together. Um, there's another view that says that's not what we mean by inerrancy. Um, it's not so important that you get down to the little nitnoid details and stuff. The idea is these big stories, what was going on. Um, I think that would be um, 
a less than Protestant view. The Protestant understanding has always been the verbal, the plenary verbal inspiration. So that sounds like God didn't care about the details as long as we got the big picture right. And that doesn't feel like inspiration to me. Um, so then the third view, and this is my view, you always save your view to the last, right? You never start with yours. And, uh, and of course, I think mine's right because it's my view. And so if I thought it was wrong, it would no longer be my view. It would be somebody else's view. So here's what I think is going on. When we talk about the inspiration of the scriptures, what we mean is that God had superintended, he had inspired, he had carried along the people who wrote down the very words. What is inspired is the writing of the words, not necessarily every speech that's in there. Because there are times when people say things that are flat out wrong. For example, when, um, when Jerusalem is being besieged by Nebuchadnezzar's army, a man called the Rabshaka, he was an official in Nebuchadnezzar's um, entourage. The Rabshaka came and speaking Hebrew, he stands out in front of Jerusalem and he said, you guys, Hezekiah is lying to you. Your God is no way is he going to deliver you. Has any of the gods delivered anybody out of Nebuchadnezzar's hands? You'd be best to just give up now because we're going to besiege you and, and kill you anyway. Did, Rob, did the Rabshaka actually say that thing? Absolutely. The inspiration of Scripture tells us that's what he said. Was the Rabshaka dead wrong? Yes, he was. Because what happened was uh, Jeremiah came and said, oh, by the way, he's not going to be sticking around very long. He's heading back home and he's going to get killed. So it was verbally inspired. It actually represented what happened. But the words themselves that the Rabshaka said were wrong. But it was accurately reported as wrong. You get the same thing going on with, for example, Job. Job has three friends show up, friends in quotes. You can't see the air quotes on the tape, but there's air quotes. He has three friends show up, and they tell him, dude, you must have done something wrong. You must be a bad guy for something. Otherwise, God wouldn't zap you like this. And in the end, God comes to Job, and he says, your friends are wrong. They have spoken poorly of me. So if anybody quotes to you Job, you need to go look it up. Who are they quoting? Are they quoting one of his three friends? If they tell you that, you need to check it because the three friends are wrong. But the inspiration of the scripture says these are the words they said. It accurately presents what they said. So do you understand what I'm saying about the Bible is absolutely true, but it can say wrong things if it's reporting what a person says. So let's go to Stephen now. It's entirely possible that Stephen, in his defense, made mistakes. Um, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, oh, it was more than a couple of weeks ago, it was a couple of months ago, I had to come up here and publicly repent of my geographical heresy because I said that a Sabbath day's journey was seven days when it's only one day's worth of journey. I was wrong. So I could speak fallibly. I could make a mistake. And so it's possible that Stephen, under the pressure that he's facing as he stands before the council and the high priest and everybody, that he flubbed it a couple of times. That doesn't diminish the impact of his message. And you can tell because it got him killed. It worked. They didn't look at him and go, 75, we're not paying any attention to you. You can't even come up with the right number. They understood what he was saying. So that's, that's my view. Is, and I think it holds, in my opinion, that is a higher view of inspiration because Luke didn't feel the need to correct those errors. He simply recorded exactly what Stephen had said. Here's how Stephen made his defense, including these differences. 
And I know that it's going to be a problem because you're going to go back and check it against other scriptures and go, well, that's not right. Um, but Luke just presented it there. He just put it out there because he was accurately representing what Stephen said. So that, that's my take on that. So if anybody ever throws this in your face about the errors in the Bible, those numerous contradictions in the Bible, I, I just want to put in your hand some ways to reconcile that, to say that's not the case. That doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. It, it, it could mean that Stephen made a mistake. It, it, there is a possibility of reconciling these things if you look at them in different ways. It, it's not irreconcilable. We can have and maintain the, uh, the doctrine of inerrancy even when these kind of things happen. So I, I hope that bolsters your confidence in the scriptures. And I, thought, I, I didn't want to just kind of glaze over it because faith is under a kind of a lot of pressure lately. And so you get people, if you, if you ever have somebody who used to be in the church, who grew up in the church and has now departed from the faith, they know all the Bible stories. They know where all the, the um, weak spots are and they'll head right for them. Um, so let's be prepared to, to give an answer if somebody asks. So that's why I went with that, okay? So now let's take a look at Stephen. We know that the Bible is inerrant. We know Stephen spoke. Let's take a look at what Stephen says. One of the things the commentators said when I was reading up on this is most of the commentators said Stephen didn't answer the charges against him. You remember the charges. They, they brought in false witnesses. They trumped up these charges. Last week, I kind of boiled him down to two. He was disrespecting Moses. He was speaking poor of the law. He was changing the customs. He was dissing Moses. And he was blaspheming God. And the reason he was blaspheming God is because he said this temple is going to get torn down. He said Jesus is going to destroy this temple. So those are the two charges against him. And what I want to say is he perfectly answers those charges in this speech. As a matter of fact, he answers them so well, he brings it right back to his accusers and goes, and this is your problem. This is what you're doing wrong. How does he do it? He, move, he goes in, in um, one, two, three, four, five movements, four movements. Let's call it four. He starts with Abraham in verses 2 through 8. Then he talks about Joseph in 9 through 16. Then he talks about Moses. It's the biggest par portion of this because that's one of the biggest accusations that he was disrespecting Moses. Um, but he's also in there talking about the Exodus. So it's Moses and the Exodus in 17 through 43. And then finally he addresses the issue of the temple, which... Isn't that what he was accused was Jesus is going to tear down the temple in 44 through 50. So that's his movement. And what he does is he recounts a, a trimmed down version of the history of Israel. He, he reminds them of the history of their great nation. And, and he knows that they know it. But he's bringing through, he's threading through a particular view, a particular thread that he wants to bring out. So let's take a look at that first one, verses 2 through 8. Um, let me just read them really quick. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, his father died. God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him. Though he, did, though he had no child. God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others and would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. 
and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs. Can you throw up that next slide real quick? Um, just want to kind of reorient our, uh, us real fast. Here's what's going on. Um, this is basically Abraham's movement at the beginning of his story. Down here it says Ur with a question mark. We're not sure where Ur was. Um, there's a, for a long time it was presumed to be down here. Some people think it might be up here. Doesn't really matter. He was in Ur of the Chaldeans. He traveled up to Haran, which is up in what's now modern-day Syria. So he traveled to Haran, and that's where he stopped. He stayed there for a while until Terah had died, and then God called him to go into the Promised Land, and so he travels back down, and here's the, um, the, the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, the River Jordan, and so he travels in this area. That was his, his motion throughout the Promised Land. That's what Stephen is reminding him of. Let's point out a couple of things that Stephen brings out because he selected the stories. There were many more stories. You remember we did Genesis not that long ago. There were many more stories about Abraham, but he picks a couple of them. First of all, he talks about him being called out. Come out from your country. Come out from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. What you get is this picture of one man that God reaches out and calls to himself, draws him out from his, his background and draws him to himself. So there's this lone person who's God's man in this Canaan territory. The other thing he mentions is he mentions specifically the covenant of circumcision. Now remember the accusation was you're changing the customs of Moses. And so what he tells him here is circumcision is not a custom of Moses. It predates Moses. It's a custom of Abraham. That's something that God gave us as his covenant promise long, long ago. He said, I'm not messing with that. That's not what I'm preaching against. I'm affirming it. He doesn't say a negative thing about it here. In the context of that, he mentions God's promise that Abraham's offspring will be captives. They will be enslaved in a country not their own. And that God will visit them and draw them out. He won't forget them there. He'll draw them out of that captivity. And then he meant, Stephen mentions that God appeared to Abraham in Canaan or in Mesopotamia. Um, this area, by, by the way, here, is that on? Why is it not working? Oh, um, this area here, it's actually along the Tigris and Euphrates. This is Mesopotamia. So that's where he says he was. God appeared, according to Stephen, to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He's reminding the Israelites, our God is not a geographical deity. He is not restricted to the promised land. He can appear in Haran. He can appear in Mesopotamia. He can be anywhere because he is the God of the whole universe. These things will come into play a little bit later. So that's his, his summarization of Abraham. Then he talks about Joseph because what he's done is he's gotten us to the storyline to the point where Jacob's had 12 sons. Now we need to get those 12 sons into uh, Egypt. So verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of the hand, all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, a great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. 
And on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family um, became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So now he tells the story of Joseph. We didn't, not that long ago, we did Joseph. You're familiar with what's going on. But he pulls out a couple of things. Remember, Abraham was this lone man that God had chosen and called out. Now we look at this and we go, there's the 12 brothers. There's one brother that God is with and the other brothers oppose him. So we get that lone man again who's going to do something wonderful. He's He's going to be great, but his brothers are opposing him. So that's another theme that kind of comes through it. He, this one lone man was elevated to rule over all the earth at that time, really, in, in Egypt. And the thing that, that um, Stephen wants to point out is that God was with him. So again, God's man in a foreign land, this time not in Canaan, God comes to him. So even in Egypt, God was with Joseph. God was still sovereign over everything that happened in Joseph. So the lone man who's going to go forward, who's going to be persecuted, ultimately will rule. That's that picture that he gives us of Joseph. Now, the biggest one is Moses in the Exodus. Um, It's the biggest section because he really needs to to drive home, I am not disrespectful of Moses in any way, shape, or form. So he starts by talking about um, Moses' birth. So after the brothers and everybody are settled in Egypt, um, the, he starts by saying the time of the promise came near. What promise was that? The promise of their deliverance. They have been in Egypt, they've been enslaved, and now the time of the promise is coming up. God said it would be 400 years, it's 400 years. And what happens is a baby's born. And Moses is a beautiful child. And so the Pharaoh, fearing these people, this is why it was important that it was a small group, 70, 75 people. Because by this point, they are so numerous, they terrify the Egyptians. There are so many people that they they feel like if we just let them go, they're going to take over. So let's enslave them. Let's keep them down. And then the Pharaoh, who doesn't know who Joseph was, says, we can't allow them to continue to multiply. Kill all the male children. If a child is born in a Hebrew house and it's a male, you kill him. So he brings in their midwives because they'd be the ones attending the birth and tells him, this is what you must do. And so they don't do it because they feared God. And so what the Pharaoh does next is he says, okay, um, what we're going to say is we're just going to take any male Hebrew child and throw him in the Nile. We'll drown him. And that's what's going to happen. But Moses' parents look and they say, he's too precious. He's too beautiful of a child. There's something special about this person. We can't let him be drowned. So they put him in a basket, put him in the Nile, and he drifts up to Pharaoh's daughter. Anybody seen Prince of Egypt, that animated? Yeah, they got it all wrong. In Prince of Egypt, it's Pharaoh's wife that finds him. And and when he gets to age, he has no idea that he's a Hebrew. He's just totally surprised that he's a Hebrew. That's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. Great great movie. I love it. Good music and everything. But that's not true. Um, Storytelling, right? So he grows up in Pharaoh's household. He becomes accustomed with uh, Egyptian wisdom, Egyptian teaching. He is basically raised as an Egyptian because Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. 
But one day he goes out to visit his brothers. He says, you know, I, my people are here and I should connect with them. I should have some, some more fellowship with them. And he goes out and he sees an Egyptian abusing one of them, one of the Egyptian taskmasters. And so Moses rises up and kills the man and drags his body into the desert and buries it in the sand. And then he goes home. And the next day he comes out to visit his brothers again. And that's where we got that story that, that we mentioned earlier. Is they look at him and they say, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And so Moses is now terrified. If the word got out, if the Hebrews are mumbling about it, it won't be too long before their taskmaster is here. And if their taskmaster is here, it's getting to Pharaoh and I'm dead. And so he takes off. Again, one man cast out, leaving out on his own in a foreign place. He heads to Midian. While he's in Midian, he's tending sheep. That's his job for the next 40 years. He's out tending sheep and he sees a bush up on the hill and it's on fire. Oh, that's interesting. And then when he looks back again, the bush hasn't been consumed. It didn't get any smaller. It's just sitting there burning. So he says, that's weird. I'm going to go check that out. And when he gets there, it wasn't a bush on fire. It was a bush and there was an angel standing there glowing. And that's what he saw. It looked like it was on fire. And God speaks to him from the bush. And that's where we had that part about uh, take off your sandals. I am the God of your father. And then what God tells him is, you're going to go back and you're going to deliver my people. So that's, that's the story of Moses. Now he returns and he is supposed to uh, deliver God's people from the slavery, but they still reject him. And as a matter of fact, as he's in the process of delivering him, they get mad at him because things get worse before they get any better. So again, here's God's lone man being rejected by his brothers and yet accomplishing God's purpose through the midst of all of that. that that's the story of Moses. When he finally does get him out, leads him out into the wilderness, um, Stephen jumps right to the, the issue of the golden calf. And what had happened there was God told them to go to Mount Sinai, and he speaks to them. God himself speaks to the nation from Mount Sinai. His voice thunders the Ten Commandments to the nation. And he said, we're terrified. We can't we can't hang with this. If he speaks again, we're all going to die. Moses, you go talk to him. We'll listen to you. So while Moses is up on the mountain getting the law and the, the design for the tabernacle and all of these things, down in the camp they go, well, I don't know what happened to that guy. We don't know what happened. He's gone. Where'd he go? So they look at Aaron and they say, make us calves. Make us gods. We want to worship the way we did in Egypt. This God who appeared on the mountain, he's too scary. We want something more manageable. So couple golden calves, and we're set. And so that's what they did, is they set up this golden calf. Now, the next thing that um, Stephen does is he quotes Amos. And uh, this, this passage from Amos, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of Rephim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So this jumps way ahead in redemptive history. But it's looking back at this event. These people in the wilderness wanted to focus on, they wanted to deal with the work of their hands. That was what the golden calf was about. So he quotes Amos. Again, this is another one where if anybody ever says, well, you see, he got it wrong. Because if you look up Amos, it's got different God's names. He's quoting the Septuagint. It's, it's a literal quote from, from the Septuagint. So it's okay. They, they trans, instead of transliterated names, they translated into gods that people would know. That, that's all right. So that's where he, he paints that picture. So those, those are the, the pictures that we have so far, is God chooses this lone man and elevates him, and people oppose him, 
And yet he's God's man and he accomplishes God's purpose. And, and it's not just, oh, those pagans. It's not just those, those Gentiles. What the picture painter, uh, Stephen paints is, as it becomes more and more closer to uh, Moses, it's you guys. It's his own brothers. It is his own nation who is opposing him. And so that's, the, that's where he leaves them as he, puts, he gets to that point, and then suddenly he kicks into high gear. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We've got to do the temple. I beg your pardon. I'm rushing to the end. <laughs> Isn't that like a preacher always rushed to the application? You know, We've we got to get there, honestly. So not, next thing he talks about is the temple. So he's addressed, I have not disrespected Moses. I'm fully respecting Moses. I understand who he is and what he's done. Now he looks to the temple. So he was accused of speaking against the temple, and so he retells the story. Moses was given the pattern of the thing. Not the actual thing, but the pattern of the thing. This is what I want you to build in the wilderness. It's going to look like something. Solomon comes along. He, David can't build it because he's a man of blood, but Solomon can build it. So Solomon builds this big, beautiful temple. And then he remembers from First Kings, when Solomon dedicates the temple. And as Solomon is praying, he's about to dedicate the temple. Solomon prays. He says that heavens and the highest heavens can't contain you. No more this house. God doesn't live in homes. So what he's reminding him is Solomon is saying, God is not confined to this temple. Solomon didn't believe that. This was the place where we come to meet with God. But our God, remember, it could be in Mesopotamia. He could be in Egypt. He could be in Canaan. He is bigger than this temple. So what he's reminding them is God is greater than a temple. But these folks are upset because they really love that particular building. And here's the problem. is When um, Stephen is recounting it, he says that God doesn't dwell in a house made with hands. This is important. This is, not a, this is not God's dwelling house because this was made with hands. God's actual dwelling is in heaven, and this is just a mirror of it. And so in verse 41, when he's talking about them with the golden calves, he says they were rejoicing in the work of their hands. So here's the problem. If Jesus comes and he destroys this temple, God is not diminished in any way because he met with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He met with Joseph in Egypt. He met with Moses in Midian. He is not constrained to this temple. If, God, if Jesus comes and he destroys this temple, you know what he's destroyed? The work of your hands. And what the problem here is, is he, they love what they can control. They love what they can manipulate, what their hands can have. And so to threaten them by, by removing the temple, that's what we're in charge of. If you take the temple out, what are we in charge of then? We, we can't have that. We have to be in charge of something. So now he gets to the application. So is he dissing the temple? Is he saying the temple is just, you know, he's, he's saying it's fulfilled its purpose. It's run its course. Now something bigger is coming. And now he turns on them. And he, this is where he, he brings down the thunder. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised, always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so you do. What he's accusing them of, as he looks at them, is he's saying, you have not changed a whit. From the days of Moses, from the days before Moses, from the days of Joseph, you have not changed at all. You have always resisted God. You have always resisted God's people. You have always opposed the man that God chose to accomplish his purposes. You are doing exactly what your fathers did. Where do you think Stephen got that? 
That was Jesus' accusation against the scribes and the Pharisees. Is there a prophet you guys did not kill? Of course I have to go to Jerusalem. It's only appropriate that a prophet would be murdered in Jerusalem. Of course I'm going there. He's telling him, you people have not changed at all. You're still doing every single thing you've ever done. And now next week, just a peek ahead, they really don't like that. They, they don't respond well to this, you are a bunch of sinners. Um, but let's not get there yet. Let's, let, we, we need to end it right where we are here. So to wrap this up, to, to bring this all together, let's listen to two people. There are two people involved here. Luke, who wrote this, has a message for us. And Stephen, who spoke it, has a message for us. So let's stop and listen to Luke for a second. Remember, my point is, this is Jesus' disciples making disciples. What we see in Stephen is the first time one of the disciples made by the disciples is front and center. How'd they do? I think they did pretty well. Stephen is, how did Luke describe him? Full of grace and power. When the, when the council looked on him, what did they see? They saw the face of an angel. They saw a confidence, a hope, an unshakable faith in this man. So I would say the disciples so far are doing pretty well with making disciples. This is what a disciple would be like. And if you remember last week, I talked about that being full of grace. How is, how is he full of grace? How do we get full of grace? And, and why is that important? Well, God gives us grace in a number of different ways. One of the ways that he gives us grace is through his word. And did Stephen know his Bible? He quoted Amos. I can't quote Amos. I don't know a single verse out of the book of Amos. And Stephen, standing there, looks at those people and quotes right out of the book. Word for word, quotes it back to him. That man knows his scripture. Later, he quotes 2 Kings. So he knows his Bible. When he retells that story of Israel's history, he cherry picks because he's familiar with the whole story. He's able to present it all. So this man who is full of grace and full of power is full of grace because in one way, or for one reason at least, because he knows his scriptures. He knows the Bible. He understands that. And when he understands the Bible, he doesn't just read it and go, well, that was nice. He's looking through it and go, what does this mean? How does this apply? He picks up and applies things to the people standing in front of him in ways that are just amazing. Not because he has a cursory knowledge of the Bible, but because he's studied it, he's thought on it, he's prayed through it, he's meditated on it, he soaked his brain in it. So he goes, here's the pattern, here's this grand pattern that I see in Scripture, and look where it leads. These hypocrites are about to persecute me. This is straight out of the Bible. This is straight out of Scripture. This is a man who knows the Scripture. So he is full of grace because he knew his Bible. Do you want to grow in grace? One of the ways that God has given you to grow in grace is know your Bible. Read through it in a year. There's nothing magical about 365 and a quarter days. But it's a helpful marker to read through your Bible in a year. Get used to that story. Follow that story over and over again. And you'll think, oh, I know. I read it last year. I know this story. I, Lisa and I have been reading through our Bibles for years, and we still go, Did you, do you remember this? It's like, what, what book is that in? Who said that? I don't remember that. It, God's Word is living and active. 
It's sharper than any two-edged sword. So reading through it over and over again won't become boring. It will have an effect on you. It will, the way the author of Hebrews says, cleave between marrow and joint. It will pierce down to your soul. So if you want to grow in grace, if you want to be a successful disciple like Stephen, if you want to have that kind of a, a, a power of God about you, pour yourself into the word. That's one of the primary ways you can do that is just soak in the word. So that's, that's Luke's advice to us in this. This is what Luke is telling us about. What does Stephen have to say to us? What is his point? Stephen's accusations... Uh, Stephen's accusation is that the leaders in his day, the religious leaders, right, the guys with the really nice robes and the pointy hats, the big guys, were hypocrites. His point is, you're worshiping what your hands can create. You're worshiping what you're able to accomplish. And when the God of the Bible shows up, when he walks among you, what you do is you kill his righteous one. You kill Jesus Christ because you can't stand him because he's not the work of your hands. This is his accusation. This is the, the, um, the biblical trajectory is this is what wicked people do. They oppose God's man. And that's exactly what they've done. So his application is, as he looks at these folks, he goes, I have not disregarded Moses. You have. Because he says specifically, you were given the law and you don't even fulfill it. You don't even obey it. You were told what to do and you still don't do it. So don't look at me and say, I'm disrespecting Moses. You never respected him. Because Moses made a promise to you. He said, God will raise up a prophet from among you who will be like me. And Stephen says, the, the point is, he came and you killed him. So don't, don't lecture me about being disrespectful or disregarding Moses. You folks have never listened to Moses. From the time in the wilderness to today, you have never listened to Moses, and you continue to not listen to him. You resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is attempting to accomplish something. He's working in a trajectory, and what you're doing is you're, re you're resisting him. You're fighting against him. What did Gamaliel warn them? So look, if, we, if, if this thing is from God, and it probably isn't, if this thing is from God... We, we can't win, and we'll be found to be opposing God. Stephen just looks at him and goes, you know what? This thing is from God, and you are opposing him. Gamaliel was right, even though he was a skeptic. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You persecute the prophets, and you kill Jesus. So that's, that's the, the trajectory they're on. That's their path that they're walking down. How do you get there? You worship the works of your hands. You delight in, I can be in control. I can make this thing. I can control this thing. I will do this thing that I want done. God refuses. God cannot fit in their temple. He can't be confined to it. He can't be approached only by their, their power, only by their manipulations, only by their sacrifices. He can't be. He appeared in Egypt. He appeared in Haran. He appeared in Midian. He's beyond their control. That's why they resist him. So a self-made religion, a religion that delights in the work of your own hands, will take you in this trajectory because you don't like to lose control. I want to be able to control this God. I want to be able to manipulate this thing. I want to be the one calling the shots. And when God himself shows up and he doesn't agree with me, he's got to go. That's the path. That's the trajectory of of self-made religion, but 
Stephen isn't all bad news, is he? There's also good news in there, too. Because how long ago did this opposition start? According to Stephen's sermon, it started with Joseph. It started when God had chosen Joseph and made him a promise, and his brothers resisted him. Did it go away? Nope. When Moses shows up, the same thing. They resist him in Egypt. They resist him in the wilderness. They fought against him. They constantly said, oh, let's go back to Egypt. At least we had leeks and food. And so they, they want to turn against Moses. The time of the judges, read Judges and then wash your brain out. That is a downward slide. They continue to resist God. They continue to do things their own way. Kings and Chronicles, it makes you dizzy because it's so up and down and back and forth. Is they had a good king and things went pretty well, and then they had a bad king and things went really horrible. And then finally, at the end of Chronicles, then God sends them into exile. But does he send them into exile for eternity? 70 years. And then I'll bring you back. And then 400 years later, this guy shows up in the wilderness looking kind of freaky with a, a, a robe and a belt and eating locusts and honey and announcing that somebody's coming. One more time, God extends his grace to them. That's a period of thousands of years. This is how patient our God is. This is how kind and long-suffering his grace is, is he will put up with that kind of rebellion for thousands of years. But it has a mark. There, there's a mark on the picture, and when it hits that point, it's filled, and he'll deal with it. So... That's the good news in the midst of this is he tells these leaders, you have time and time and time and time again had opportunity to turn. Now is the day of deciding. Now is the day of decision. A definite event has happened. Jesus Christ has come and you need to make up your minds. So that's where he goes with it. That sounds an awful lot like somebody else. When Paul is in Athens, he's speaking to a bunch of Gentiles, but listen to what he says to them. He says, being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Could say with men's hands. Just saying. The times of ignorance God overlooked. The times of ignorance God overlooked. He was patient with you because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. It's the same message, isn't it? The same message preached to the Jews who are resisting Jesus and to the Gentiles who don't know Jesus is God overlooked your time of ignorance. God is not like these images of stone and wood and, and, and metal and all those other things. But now's the time. Today is the day. You need to make a decision. The time of ignorance is over. God has busted out of his temple. So this temptation to false religion is all around us. And, you know, I'm a good seven-point Calvinist, so I believe that when God saves you, he perseveres you to the end, that you can't lose your salvation. But does that mean we don't need warnings along the road? Does that mean that, hey, I'm, I'm, I got my fire insurance, got my card punched, I'm, I'm done? We need to be vigilant in these things. And so listen to what Paul says. This is another one of those. It fits so much with Stephen I wonder if Paul was there. I know We know he was there when he gets stoned. I wonder if he was there in the hearing and listening to Stephen, because listen to what he says. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul goes through this history of Israel in the wilderness. 
And, and he talks about all of these great things that they had available to him. And then in uh, verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example. What? Israel in the wilderness? That was an example. But they were written down for our instruction. They were written down for us. On whom the end of the ages has come, the time that was appointed. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. Take heed. So I, I believe that um, Paul was a good Calvinist, or maybe that's the other way around. Calvin was a good Paulist, probably. And Paul is looking at these folks, and he, he, he is the same Paul who will talk about their election, their assurance, the, that he who chose you um, will glorify you. And then he says, take heed lest anyone fall. It's important that you don't fall because no temptation is overtaking you except that's what's common. Everybody runs into these temptations. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. See, God will preserve you to the end. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will make sure you get out of this. And then the very next thing he says is, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. And he looks at them and he says, therefore, my good friends, flee idolatry. Does that apply to us today? Is that warning still valid for us? Do we need to flee from idolatry? Anybody got a statue of their ancestors in their house with incense around it? We'll talk later if you do. I don't think we practice idolatry that way. We are far too sophisticated. Since the Enlightenment, we have come up with all sorts of great ways to throw off vestiges of religion. And in reality, at our heart, we are a religious people. We are built to be religious. We can't help but be religious. So what we've done is we've thrown off these religious icons, these idols, these pictures, and instead taken things in their place like power and authority and, and money and position and good looks and sex and cars and whatever it is. Those things can be modern adaptations of idols. When that becomes the most important thing for you, I think one of the best diagnostics I've ever heard, how do you tell if you have an idol? Where do you run when you're confronted? Where do you run when you're afraid? What thing do you cling to when danger is around? There's a tornado warning. Okay, we don't get tornadoes here, but this will work because we don't get earthquake warnings, do we? It just shows up. So there's a tornado warning. What one thing are you going to run to in your house? Basement would be wise. <laughs> What do you want to take down there with you? You might want to run out and drive your car into the drive or into the garage and close the door so it's safe, so none of this stuff. But your car is your idol. You might run upstairs in the midst of this, this blowing wind and this tornado warning to grab your family photos and run downstairs. Your family is your idol. You might go up and grab your, your fireproof box because, yeah, it'll probably survive, but the wind might blow it away, so I'll take it with me. Your money is your idol. Where do you flee in those times when you're terrified? That could well be your idol. That could be the thing you're clinging to for identity. If the threat is real, if you're about to lose everything, what do you hold on to? Because that's your everything. Now, having said that, you know, I would probably want to grab my family photos too. I don't think I put the car in the garage, but there are things that I would want and they're not idols. 
I'm using it as a diagnostic. This could be. This could point to. And so watch what happens in your life when you're threatened, when, you're, when your joy is, is being touched on. Where does your heart flee to? Where does it run to? That might tell you what your idol is. So listen to Paul. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Listen to Stephen. Here's the history of the nation. It was written down for your instruction. Listen to Luke. Grow in grace. Be filled with grace. Seek out grace. Know your God more. The more you know the true and the living God, the more displaced those idols become. You know why? They can't measure up. They just don't even come close. So this is, this is our, our first disciples' message to us. And I think if we heed this, then we've got a disciple who's made by disciples making disciples who, who might be successful, might do pretty well. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And what it's going to cost Stephen, we'll see next week, is his very life. And he goes willingly because some things are greater than even life. Let's pray. Lord, would you increase our faith? Help us to believe, to see and to believe and to understand that you are worth so much more than anything else we have in this world. Lord, to appreciate, to thank you, to rejoice in the gifts that you give, but not to neglect the gift giver. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would grow in grace, that you would fill us with grace, that your unmerited favor would rest on us in such a strong way that you poke us and Bible bleeds out, that you threaten us and praise him, uh, comes from our lips. And Lord, I pray that you would lead all of us to flee from idolatry. In Christ's name, amen.